Hello, I'm Elliot Knight, Director of the Alabama State Council on the Arts. Welcome to Alabama Arts Radio. Each week, Council staff will introduce you to exceptional artists and special people who make the arts happen in Alabama. Alabama Arts Radio features the visual, performing, literary, and folk arts that contribute to our state's rich cultural heritage. Join us each Wednesday at 9 p.m. Central to explore the diverse and dynamic arts landscape in Alabama. Russell Gully's conversation with the amazing guitarist Travis Womack was recorded in July 2021, just before Travis appeared as part of the Salt and Pepper music series. This is Russell Gully. I'm here with Travis Womack. I want to talk to him about a couple of things that, of course, the whole mission of the Salt and Pepper is to show how roots music, whether it be blues, in this case it is, but it could be early country or folk music, gospel music, how it's influenced the recording industry here in Muscle Shows. Now, we all know that the diversity really added to their acclaim, I'm saying the uh, community of musicians itself, it's hard to pull out one guy. The influence of all of those roots is found in the music that has been recorded here in Muscle Shows because Muscle Shows has done pop, it's done rock, it started out developing soul music. As we talk about the influence of blues, seeing Travis Womack on stage, Travis is a legend, folks. Bobby Rush is as well. When you put these two on stage together, you'll see both sides of the coin, I believe. It's going to be a heck of a show. <laughs> Guaranteed. Well, let me ask you this. As a kid growing up in Memphis, and I've heard the stories about how you would take your guitar and go down, you know, to some of the joints and get people to let you play. And then when the guys over at Sun Records discovered you, and you did your first record at 12, was it? 11 years old. 11 years old. 11 years old at Fernwood Recording Studios. Well, that being the case, were you aware at that age of the influence of blues on the early rockabilly guys, or how did you perceive that music that was being created? Well, my parents grew up listening to hillbilly and country. Then all of a sudden, uh, this word popped up around Memphis, rockabilly. One of the first groups I can remember was a rock and roll trio, Johnny Burnett and Dorsey Burnett, mm-hmm. the guitar player Paul Burleson. They did the Ted Mack Hammer Hour, and they did a song that Paul Burleson had written, Tear It Up. And when I heard that thing, I was, man, I love this. This is it. They used to call me Little Elvis, because I, I tell everybody I was the first Elvis impersonator <laughs> at 11 years old. But we went into Fernwood Recording Studio, and... Of course, I didn't know it back then, and most of them guys didn't know it. But I had probably one of the finest bands around. Reggie Young was playing guitar, and I was playing rhythm. I had Stan Kessler on bass, who at the time, he was a producer and a songwriter. But later on, he became the producer of Sam the Sham, Wooly Bully. And guess who my engineer was? Elvis Presley's guitar player, Scotty Moore. Oh, yeah? And uh, I'd written both songs, both were rockers. Rock and Roll Blues, and I'm leaving today. Roland James said I sounded like a young Brenda Lee. My voice hadn't changed. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's where I started. Eddie Bond, who was a DJ and also a rockabilly singer there, he became a manager, and, and I started opening shows. Back then, they called them jamborees. I started opening shows all in the south of uh, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, and Arkansas, and uh, I would go out, and I'd do two or three songs, and family, we were real poor, and I'd already started playing electric guitar. So before the show... 
Eddie Bunn would go backstage and he'd ask, Anybody back here, little Travis Barr, electric guitar? And somebody always let me borrow one. So one night I remember over in Arkansas, Eddie Bunn went back there and asked that question, and Carl Perkins was on the show. He said, Eddie, little Travis can use mine. And uh, he said, here. He got it out. He said, put it up to him. And uh, that thing hung down around my kneecaps. He said, we have to do something about that. Eddie, hold it up there where it's comfortable. Eddie held it up there, and Carl went in his pocket, come out with a pocket knife, cut a hole in his new strap where it fit me, and I went out. Open for everybody playing Carl Perkins' gold-top Gibson. <laughs> now they will forget that. I knew at an early age you were exposed to a lot of those guys. I hit to ride with somebody, of course, I couldn't drive, but I hit to ride with somebody go up to Sun Records. And, and uh, I remember a lot of that stuff that a lot of the other people don't. I guess because a kid's memory probably is better than when, when you get, you know, 18 or 19. But I can remember a lot of a lot of the different artists and everything's up there. Um, and I started out playing drums and guitar, too. I played drums with a rockabilly singer when I was 12, Charlie Feathers. And he's noted right now as the king of the rockabilly singers. I played drums with him, started playing around, and I, my bass player, who could drive, he told me, he said, I'm doing sessions over at Sonic Studios. I think you can get the job over. You want to go there? I said, yeah. He said, well, come on. So we went over there and Roland Janes was the owner and engineer, and he's also the guy that played guitar on most of the Sun records. Jerry Lee Lewis's Great Balls of Fire and a whole lot of shaking going on. And I went in there, I was real cocky back then. I told him, I said, I want to be your session guitar player. He said, well, Travis, I remember when they called you Little Travis. Uh, you played a rhythm. Let me hear what you can do. So I played him some licks and stuff. He said, I got a session next Tuesday. We're going to be doing J.W. Brown. That's Jerry Lee Lewis's father-in-law and his bass player. And also, Jerry Lee married his daughter, 13-year-old, Myra. I did the session, and from then on, I became the session guitar player. And J.W. Brown, that, that record was on ADCO. So I uh, told Roland, I said, I want to be a star. He said, well, hear what you got. And I, I started singing some songs and playing some instrumentals. He said, the instrumentals are going good right now. The Ventures and Dwayne Eddy and all that. So we cut some instrumentals. And first person we sent Scratchy to was Chet Atkins. Chet Atkins was head of A&R at RCA. And back then, you had to send reel-to-reel on a small reel, you know. We've still got the letter. Chet Atkins sent the letter back to Roland James, and all it said on it was, Roland, this scares me. I pass. That was it. People back in, we started pushing the record, going to all the small radio stations, getting them to play it, forcing the big stations to go on it. We had it going in Memphis, got number one in Birmingham and, and Atlanta. About that time, Atlantic called. They, they wanted to do a national distribution. They did. From then on, Jerry Wexler called. He said, I want to put these on Atlantic. I was on Atlantic before probably anybody down here. <laughs> well, that first copy of the 45 or Scratchy that I ever had, and hopefully it's still in my collection somewhere, was ARA yeah. Records. Yeah, American Local. Recording Association. Chet Atkins and Merle Travis was probably the two best guitar players back then, and they were good, but I started trying things. I built my own distortion unit, and I used it on Scratch. I took an old tape recorder and overloaded it, got this sound, and, and it, there's no pedal out there. It sounds like it. And also, we did a reverse tape thing on Scratchy before the Beatles. Yeah. I'm sitting at the drive-in one night. I got looking at that old drive-in speaker, that old gray drive-in speaker. I thought, you know, that thing might sound pretty good with my guitar coming through it. I accidentally forgot to take it off the window. So I, I hooked it up to my Fender Super Reverb, and there's two records you can catch on YouTube, the old Maurice Williams and the Zodiac Stay. I did an instrumental of that, and I also did a 
instrumental Louie Louie using that drive-in speaker, and it's a different sound. Let's hear the result of some of those innovations and experiments. Here's 16-year-old Travis Walnut playing Scratchy. Reminds me of the Marty Robbins record. Had the uh, distortion in it, and leave that in there. Yeah, but stuff like that. I, you know, I was down at my grandparents one summer. They had a whale, and I'd go over and I'd holler down in that whale, get that echo sound. You know, and I thought, man, that's that's wild. And I spotted this big old metal pipe. It was probably 10 inches, 12 inches in circumference, and it's probably 12 foot. And I got one of my buddies to help me. We loaded that thing up, and I took it over to the studio, and I told Roland, I said. Got a new echo chamber. What in the hell are you talking about? I said, put the mic at the end of this here pipe and set my amp here at the front of it. He did, and, it, and, I, and we used it on a couple of records. It was a different echo. That's uh, so cool at that age to be, you know, listening and thinking about how to get different sounds. I was competitive back then. Uh, I was booking out of the same booking agency as Jerry Lee Lewis. Ray Brown, booking agency. I'd done some shows with Jerry Lambo. He was tearing them up. I come up with this idea. This was before wireless. I went to a music store and I asked the technician, I said, could you make me a 100-foot guitar chord? He said, what? And I said, 100-foot guitar chord. Yeah, I, I, you know. So he made me a 100-foot guitar chord, and I checked it out. And my, our next show was in Louisville, Kentucky, in, a, in the big Coliseum up there. When I went on, I jumped off the stage when I played Scratch, and I was able to get on out to half court in the circle, and I played uh, part of Scratchy with my foot. Jerry Lewis came back to Ray Brown, don't put Travis's eyes back on any of my shows. But that was before wireless. 
Have you ever done any shows with Bobby Rush? You know, I think we did uh, King Biscuit down there in Helena, Arkansas. I think I did that one year that he was on the show. Well, he really respects you. Well, I do him. This guy's been around a long time, and he's got the stuff, and he's got the brains that go with it. He's definitely a legend himself. Well, he uh, told me that he feels like he's just now breaking through to the white audience. Mm-hmm. One of my biggest honors was four years ago, I got inducted into that Hill Country Blues Hall of Fame, and there's very few white well, people in it. Yeah, that's quite an honor. Well, I never started out to be, quote, a blues musician. Yeah. Yet a lot of people think that's what I am. And I listen to my records and I say, mm, that's not blues, that's... But it is roots. It's Russell Gully blues. You've got your own touch on, on stuff like that. As a result, I have met and worked with, in some cases, promoted them. A lot of the roots blues acts that Bobby is kind of at the top of the line yeah. when they play the southern chitlin circuit mm -hmm. you're not going to reach over to the yeah. white audience yeah. and so bobby feels like he's just now doing that that's good i grew up in memphis and of course george jackson me and him grew up together we, we played in the same band and i said i want to learn how to sing black woodwork shows just all over and I, then when i moved down here that's when rick rick was looking for a soul writer and i i called george and i remember remember the conversation Rick said, George, Travis says you're a good R&B writer. I'm going to send you a plane ticket. Come down and I'd like to talk to you. George said, uh, I, I don't fly. And he said, well, I'll send you a check for gas money. Come on down. He said, I don't drive. He said, uh, well, George said, I come down on the Greyhound. He said, okay. So George came down on the Greyhound. I've seen George sell his songs for 10 and $15 after we recorded them. There'd be a couple of guys there waiting till we recorded them. And... Him, it was another writer that he wrote with a lot of her, Dan Greer. They would sell him songs for 10 and $15. A bunch of them. Once the old time rock and roll hit, well, I mean, he was writing stuff for all the other folks before that. Have, have I told you my story on old time rock and roll? No. I'm going to tell you again, the good Lord up above is the truth. I had a record that hit the top 40 called Whatever Turns You On, Do It. George had written it. Got a call one day from George. George, Rick had done pissed George off, and George done over to Jimmy now. He said, Travis, he said, we just finished a song. I think it'd be a great follow-up to whatever turns you on. And I said, well, George, bring the cassette over. And he said, no, we hadn't even put it on cassette. I said, well, look here. Come over to Studio B, and I'll get Larry Hammy to put it down. I loved it. So when Rick came in, I took it upstairs to Rick, and I said, Rick, George got a song. He thinks it'd be a great follow-up to whatever turns you on, which George had written. Rick played it. And uh, this is his exact words. He said, he called me Traveler. He said, oh, Traveler, that's ain't shit. He said, we can write these all day. Bob Seger loved it. <laughs> it was old-time rock and roll. It took a little while for Bob to actually get yeah. into it. To me, that's the last standard that's come out of muscle shows. Back in the day, you know, a good record, everybody and his brother would record it and put on the album and stuff. That's probably the last big standard that came out of muscle shows Yeah, in the rock and roll field. Well, Dennis always enjoyed the song and was glad to be a part of it. There's a lot of stories about it, but you're right about Jackson and Tom Jones. Tom Jones III, that is, yeah. <laughs> for folks who don't know. Not the real one. Not the one from England. Well, I've been following him on Facebook. Yeah. And he's got some great new music. He's still singing his butt off. He just won't give up, will he? That's what I respect about you. I had the song, Greenwood, Mississippi. 
I had two verses in the course, so we wrote the last verse, and uh, I was just I was saying, take me back to the country. I'm from Walnut, Mississippi, but nobody ever heard of Walnut, Mississippi, so we called it Greenwood, Mississippi. Sure. And we both said, you know, this would be a hit for Little Richard or John Fogarty. Sure does, man. Two weeks later, in walks Little Richard. Heard it. He said, uh, I got to record that. We started recording it, and about 15 minutes into it, he kept looking over at me and shaking his head, and finally he come out of the vocal booth. He come over, and he said, uh, uh, Travis, where's that music you singing on? I said, well, Richard, that's a demo. Uh, I want to sing on that. <laughs> okay, Richard wants to sing on my demo. Of course, piss Rick off. So we put him on a uh, demo, and uh, two weeks later, here comes Tom Jones in. First thing he said was, heard little Richard recorded here. And first thing I said, well, yeah, he recorded one of my songs, Greenwood, Mississippi. And he said, oh, I got to hear it. So I took him outside and let him hear it in my truck. He said, I got to do it. So I come in, I told Rick, he did Greenwood, Mississippi, and he did the old Johnny A's song, Pledging My Will. Here's Travis Wallet's version of Greenwood, Mississippi. I uh, finally found Tom Jones' version on Spotify. Yeah. But they changed the title to Country yeah. something. Or yeah. I wouldn't have thought of it being the same song. Yeah, he sang the P out of it, too. Yeah. We had a, had a cooking track behind him. Well, tell me something. How do you keep going? Music. Uh, I try to make my next show better than my last show. I got a motto. My guitar is a gospel, and I preach with a pick in my hand. So that's me. <laughs> and the old man upstairs is taking care of me. I'm 76, and I'm in good shape. I know you are. You and Dick Cooper both. We know where the good water's at. <laughs> <laughs>
but let me ask you one or two more questions, okay. and I appreciate you doing this. My pleasure. If you had to pick a blues singer that you really were maybe not so much influenced by, but really respected, who would that be? I'll tell you what, I got an old buddy that I went to school with. Did not know that he even, well, he didn't play in high school. And uh, when we were overseas with Little Richard, kept seeing his name popping up on these festivals. Charlie Musselwhite. Oh, my gracious. I got a letter from the class reunion people, 50-year reunion, and they said, Charlie Musselwhite said he would come to the reunion if you'd come. So I got there, and he, he told me, he said, when I graduated, Travis, I, went, I moved to Chicago, and he said, I was hanging around some of them blues bars. I really liked the music. He said, a, a harp player, Junior Wells, started teaching me. He's won, I think, 26 WC Handy Awards. Charlie Musselwhite. I just got a text from him last week. He has moved down here to Clarksdale, Mississippi. I'm fixing to hook up with him, and hopefully in the future we might. I'd like to bring studio. him to the Salt and Pepper. He's one of the two or three. He plays good guitar, good blues guitar. Have you ever heard him? No. He plays a, an acoustic, like a dobro or a metal guitar. Very good. We never played together, and I was doing Memphis in May, the same year that we had the class reunion, and he was doing Memphis in May. So he said, won't you come over and do a couple of songs with me? We never had to play together. Y'all check this out on YouTube. I did two songs. We tore the walls down. I bet. I mean, never never played. I didn't even know we played each other. The crowd had started out rocking about the time we were through. I mean, it was it was awesome. I'd say Charlie Musselwhite. That's some high cotton there. He's, he's at the top of my list, too. And it's amazing, so many people have never heard of him. Yeah. One other question. How did you hook up with Peter and Gordon? Scratchy was a hit in England before it was a hit over here. They had heard the record, so they called my booking agency, Ray Brown. They said, we want Travis Wong to spend the back us on our USA tour. That's how it happened. And it was awesome because of the song, War Without Love. And at the time, he was going with Lady Jane Asher, who was Peter Asher's sister. So they converse back and forth every day, and I would talk with George. They say, George, I want to talk to you. He wanted to know what my sound, how I got that sound and stuff, you know. It was really cool. And Say, hey, well, I'll put uh, a banjo string on them. I'm scratching, you hear it, ain't? You couldn't stretch a regular string. I stretched that thing completely over the, over the top of it. That was before light gauge strings. Well, Travis, thank you. Appreciate thank you, you a whole thank bunch. You. Alabama Arts comes to you from the Alabama State Council on the Arts and the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture. Technical production by Deb Boykin. Series theme music, The Bounds of Beauty, written and performed by Scooter Muse. Tonight on Alabama Arts, musician and researcher Russell Gully talks with legendary guitarist Travis Womack, who talks about his music and his technical innovations to achieve new sounds on the electric guitar. Chet Atkins and Merle Travis was probably the two best guitar players back then, and they were good, but I started trying things. I built my own distortion unit, and I used it on scratch. I took an old tape recorder and overloaded it, got this sound, and, and it, there's no pedal out there that sounds like it. And also, we did a reverse tape thing on Scratchy. 
before the Beatles. Yeah. I'm sitting at the drive-in one night. I got looking at that old drive-in speaker, that old gray drive-in speaker. I thought, you know, that thing might sound pretty good with my guitar coming through it. I accidentally forgot to take it off the window. So I, I hooked it up to my Fender Super Reverb, and there's two records you can catch on YouTube using that drive-in speaker. It is a different sound. <laughs> but first, the news. This week on Alabama Arts, musician and researcher Russell Gully talks with legendary guitarist Travis Womack. Chet Atkins and Merle Travis was probably the two best guitar players back then, and they were good, but I started trying things. I built my own distortion unit, and I used it on scratch. I took an old tape recorder and overloaded it, got this sound, and, and it, there's no pedal out there that sounds like it. And also, we did a reverse tape thing on Scratchy before the Beatles. That's Wednesday, 9 p.m. Central on Troy Public Radio.